0: Well, as I keep saying, you know we've got more than fifty international speakers who've come in just for this Better Way Conference this weekend. And joining me now is Dr. Pierre Corey, which is one of the real draws. I think that's what people have been saying how much they've been looking forward to to seeing him. We're on day two of the conference, Dr. Corey. I mean, what stood out for you so far? You were on our opening panel yesterday, and you were a keynote speaker at our gala dinner as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, beyond the individual topics and the broad range. Um, I'll tell you, for me, it's really the connection and the collaboration. I mean, uh, you're bringing together little organizations, groups of doctors, outspoken experts on all aspects of COVID under one roof, connecting. uh, I mean, we're a minority in every country, but in, in, in this kind of venue, at this kind of conference, we get to all come together. Um, we can share with it what we learned, our experiences. And uh, and really, for instance, I guess that we really need to talk about a way forward. And it has to be a way that's outside of the system. Uh, I don't want to get cynical and political and conspiratorial. But um, unfortunately, it's absolutely clear that our medical system has been captured. And um, there's very little that we can rely on it for. And so we have to learn to be self-sufficient and how to support each other and guide each other in, uh, to good health. And I think that's what we're all about.
0: What would you say to someone who's maybe new to the event and, and maybe watching online and thinking, "Oh, I'm, I might go next year, but you know, I've got to travel." And I've, got... what is it about this event that is so special? Because there is a very particular energy here, isn't there? What would you say to someone who's thinking of coming?
1: Well, I think if someone's thinking of coming, they're in a place in their life, in their evolution, in their perspective, where they're starting to ask questions and maybe questions they haven't asked before. And when you come to a place like this you get to meet like-minded people who have also probably been either willingly or forcibly um, you know, faced with the idea that we have to be more skeptical. I, I, you know, There's abundant evidence that our current power systems are, have failed, our institutions have failed us, and um, the way forward is really to ask questions of people who've been asking those questions for a long time and, and carefully considering their answers. So I think if you come it's Listen, I... <laughs> My opinion on what's happened in the world is that it's been a war of information and the the, the powers of propaganda and censorship are now so global, so pervasive, that we need to figure out a way to access better and more transparent information that's really meant really to help us and not to help some other objectives. And I think if you come here, you're gonna meet people who've been trying to do that. And uh, no one's gonna come here and be worse off afterwards. They're only going to be more informed, um, more thoughtful, and, and better directed. Oh Pierre is
2: so right. We have been in a war of information, or lack of it. You know, much was shared over the weekend in the UK at the Better Way conference, and you can buy tickets to hear it all because that conference, like our recent FLCCC medical conference in Fort Worth, was recorded. You can go to the Better Way website and catch all that was discussed in England and go to our FLCCC website and sign up to get all that was presented in Fort Worth. Good, solid medical information. Now, Pierre was going to be with us here tonight, but something important intervened and yes, his book finally came out. Yes. Hallelujah. You know, at long last published yesterday. And I'm, I have to tell you, I find it very illuminating, a super good read. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm creative director of this Alliance of Medical Professionals and Other Seekers of Truth. And now everybody wants to interview Pierre about the book. That is everybody who's not on the big pharma payroll because this book, The War on Ivermectin, details what our doctors and what thousands of doctors who treat patients and care deeply about their patients' well-being have experienced these past three years in the COVID pandemic. So we had to let Pierre go tonight and to let the interviewers have their way with him. But we are so lucky to have two more heroes with us who will dig into the best current information, the treatments for long-haul COVID and vaccine injuries, and they will take your questions at the end. But first, welcome our brilliant Chief Scientific Officer, Dr. Paul Marrick, who is also just back from the Better Way Conference in England. Paul, welcome back, and I hope you're rested up.
3: Yeah, thanks. We had a good time in Bath. Um, the weather was great and the atmosphere was even hotter. So it was a was a good event.
2: And they don't have as much air conditioning over there as we have here. So when it gets hot, oh my goodness. Uh, was uh did you find it uh very illuminating in in ways were there things that came out that were newer than what we had at the medical conference?
3: Yeah, it was a different kind of conference to ours. Ours was pretty much focused on COVID and spike-related injury. This was a more broader, more philosophical look at what's happening in the world, and so they did kind of encroach on subjects on the fringe. Um, but there was a good atmosphere, a lot of people, and it was uh, it was good to interact.
2: Now. Nope. We have a video, don't we, of one of your presentations, a couple, a few of the comments that you made. Should we play that now?
4: You had to believe everything you read because it was the truth. That was what I used to think until I actually saw the light. It took me quite a while to see the light. And we now know that all the major journals are completely captured. They are captured by Big Pharma. New England Journal of Medicine has an estimated income of excess over $100 million with a profit margin of about 30%. So they are no different from Big Pharma. And then there are the editors of of these journals. And this is truly an astonishing statement. The editors of Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, who happen to be the most powerful medical journals in the world, have basically stated publicly that the companies are so financially powerful, they pressurize them to accept papers. So there is no such thing as independent peer review. The New England Journal announced it accept papers because they are pressurized to do so by Big Pharma and obviously that comes with an enormous price tag. And then so if you look at um, the uh, members of the chair or, or on the committees to, uh, ex- to review the NIH panel, to review um, uh, remdesivir, you can see how many members of the COVID-19 treatment guidelines, including the two of the three co-chairs, received direct contributions from, um, from Gilead. So the journals are paid off, the FDA is paid off, the people on these regulatory panels who regulate these drugs are paid off, so they're all paid off, and that's why Conflict of interest, it doesn't matter how big or how small, is a conflict. Once you have a conflict, you conflicted and you can't be honest.
2: Whatever happened to the public interest, all of those regulatory agencies were set up to act in the public interest and not let anybody be in charge from a manufacturing organization or any one of the companies that would be regulated times have certainly changed and we have yet another doctor with us who we are blessed to have our own Dr Mobin Sayed who uh, is a great teacher uh, a great artist as well and uh, you two are going to really dig into the topic of the moment the uh, the whole business about long covid uh, whether it's all long covid or maybe some of it is vaccine injuries what what's happening uh, what have you got for us
0: so happy to be here. Paul, hope you're doing well. It's good to see you, my big bean, Mo bean, king bean. Here we are. So uh, there was a time when Paul used to call him himself soy bean. What do you think? Should we continue with that tradition of <laughs> soy bean or not?
3: But you know what I discovered today or recently, Dr. Mo bean, that soy is actually not such a good bean most 95 percent of soy is genetically modified soy and actually has many toxins and so soy is something which actually one should avoid Uh, unlike mo beans mo beans
0: are good kinds of beans so i think we move from soybean to emperor bean so you are an emperor bean from (laughs) on.
2: there you go i'm gonna come back uh, you guys, when yes. when uh, we have some questions for you, because we're going to take a lot of questions, and I know we have a lot that will be coming. So take it away. Give, give us the good medical stuff.
0: Absolutely. So thank you very much for having me. Paul, I want to start with this. Uh, we have a presentation as well, but how about we start a discussion with this? Is long COVID nowadays truly just a long COVID, or it, does it also wrap the vaccine injury patients as well?
3: Yeah, so it's such a difficult question to answer because there's there's such enormous overlap between people who've had COVID and may have symptoms of long COVID and then patients who've been vaccinated and then get COVID. So there's an enormous overlap. Um, So while while there are distinct entities, there, there is still enormous overlap between the two. And as we'll see, though, the time course of long COVID and the time course of vaccine injury differ, um, but there is enormous overlap because of you know patients get both and also the symptoms are really similar. So why don't we start with your with your PowerPoint?
0: Absolutely. So let's start with the with the uh, symptom sets. And it is interesting that the symptom sets, of course, at the end of the day, spike protein is one major contributor to the symptoms. And because of that, the vaccine injury and then long COVID and acute COVID, they all have overlapping symptoms. So here is the symptom sets for the acute COVID, which then transitions into long COVID. And uh, if you see here, this study here, this is the large study that provides scientists with deeper insight into long COVID symptoms. And if you see, they had they had observed 37 symptoms. Interestingly, majority of the symptoms in more healthy individuals are now shifting upwards. They're, they're shifting towards throat, nose, even itchy eyes, tinnitus. However, more deeper uh, pneumonia and the other system and their involvement is lesser with omicron compared to the previous ancestors and we'll talk about that as well so paul here the 12 symptoms that are here the post-exertional malaise fatigue brain fog dizziness gut symptoms heart palpitations sexual problems and i want to talk a little more about that change in smell or taste thirst chronic cough chest pain abnormal movements and muscle, these are the ones, if present in acute COVID, also have a higher, also indicate a higher likelihood towards the long COVID. What has uh, been your observation? Yeah, so I that? think,
3: you know, the, the, the three symptoms that really stand out are post-exertional malaise, which is a really interesting phenomena that patients will do pretty minor physical activity and be completely debilitated and exhausted for days after. So it takes them a while to recover. And that kind of goes with the fatigue. So the post-exertional malaise, the tiredness and the fatigue, you know, kind of go hand in hand. And then of course, brain fog, you know, those are the three most common symptoms in long COVID and also in um, the vaccine injured. But, you know, what is is interesting and what many doctors don't get is these patients have multiple sy- symptoms which cross over multiple systems so that, you know, they're not presenting with typical syndromic problems. So doctors can't, they're not putting it together because it's not just, you know, it's not like the symptoms of pneumonia or the symptoms of chest pain. These patients have multiple symptoms across multiple syndromes. And so um, physicians can't put it together. But the the fatigue, the malaise, and the brain fog really stand out as being really important um, defining features of these syndromes.
0: Absolutely. And while I'll go to the next slide. But I want to give you a couple of examples. Um, Recently, uh, I went out for an international tour discussing long COVID in some countries where I think that it is important that they realize it as well. I think in US and much of the Western world, this phenomena is catching on that there is something called long COVID. So over there, when I presented that what long COVID is and how from acute COVID to long COVID, there may be a window of time when the patient apparently has recovered. And same thing for the vaccine as well. After I presented, after I came back, medical students and doctors from those presentations, they reached out and they said, I never thought that this is what's happening, but I have been tired or I have been fatigued or I do tiny things that I used to do before. And now I become tired or depressed after doing them. So can you tell me what to do? And I I point them to the FLCCC protocols. But it is very interesting for me that even medical professionals are not fully aware of the symptom sets that are indicative of long COVID.
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and you know, as I said, that they they many of these patients have multiple system multiple symptoms from multiple systems, and the physicians aren't just putting these together.
0: Absolutely. And so now talking about the symptoms, here is the clustering of various symptoms for sy- systems. So if you see here, respiratory system, shortness of breath, congestion, persistent cough. And I want to share my own situation. When I get COVID nowadays, I get cough for at least couple of months. Dry cough, and I would just keep coughing and I take anti-allergies and I take all kinds of precautions, but cough is a very common one for me. Then the neurological and psychiatric, brain fog, malaise, tiredness, headaches, migraines, depression, inability to focus or concentrate, altered cognition, insomnia, vertigo, panic attacks, tinnitus, anosmia, phantom smells, Etc. So I have a theory. All you, I think you may have heard, seen. I'm sure that you have. So many air travellers have had they 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 go out of control. They throw a tantrum so much so that they have to be contained. Do you think that that may be a contribution of long COVID?
3: Yeah, I mean that that is an interesting uh, idea. I think um, clearly. of um, the symptom complex associated with long COVID and vaccine injury is neurological. So it does interfere with cognitive function, behavioral function. Um, So yes, I I think many behavioral problems may be related to um, long COVID. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And so uh, let's just look at this symptom set and then we'll go to how do we approach management? Because this is, uh, I am astonished that even after FLCCC's service in long COVID, first acute COVID and long COVID and vaccine injury, even then, when I have my lectures, many times under the videos, there are comments that I have what you're talking about. How do I manage? What do I do? Where do I go? Yeah. So the one, if
3: there is a a, a silver lining or a bright light, the the bright light with long COVID is it's pretty much time limited. So although patients can have symptoms which linger for for months, the majority of patients, the, the duration of symptoms is about four to five months. So the good news for people with long COVID is that with time, it does get better. And that's the big distinction between long COVID and the vaccine injured because as we know, many of the vaccine injured patients, their symptoms persist for a very long time and they don't, they don't turn around so quickly. So the good news is if you do have long COVID, it tends to you know peak at about four to five months and then gets, gets better. Uh, would you agree with that?
0: Um, I completely agree. I actually would give two studies references. There is a study from uh, Canada where they took the lab markers for long covid and they followed those patients and their markers for a year and they thought that majo- they they observed that majority of the markers automatically declined with or without any intervention they just people just kept becoming slowly better the other uh, data that came out of uk the more recent data about a year ago about 11 months ago the percentage of population complaining of long COVID-like sy- symptoms was 19%. And the recent data shows 11% and in about 11 months. So you're you're very correct that as the time passes, long COVID gradually becomes better. And you're also very correct that... Elena, you're going to tell
3: us about you know alpha and delta and then omicron. So, you Absolutely. know, because that's also important. It is, it is long COVID, you know, more, less or more common after Omicron than the earlier variants?
0: Absolutely. This is actually a very important point, and we have slides for that, that long COVID because of the earlier variants was more intense and with more symptoms compared to the long COVID nowadays with Omicron. So we'll we'll go to that. Uh, so very quickly here, musculoskeletal system, myalgias, fatigue, weakness, joint pains, inability to exercise, post-exertional malaise, inability to perform normal activities of daily life. Cardiovascular system. This has been so many people have complained about palpitations and tachycardias and arrhythmias. Raynaud-like syndrome. The the fingers becoming red and and swollen and painful. Hypotension, tachycardia. Then on the autonomic side, postural tachycardia syndrome is very common actually nowadays. Abnormal sweating, GIT disturbance, anorexia, loss of uh, uh, hunger, diarrhea, bloating, vomiting, nausea, dermatological. So this is also a very important one because many times people do not register that this continuous itch that they get, not of a thought, but on the skin, that itch could actually be long COVID. So itching, rashes, dermatographia, and then mucous membrane, runny nose, sneezing, burning, and itchy eyes. So Paul, before we go to the, um, would you like to talk about the treatment after, or before? Yeah, let's go through it, and then we can
3: talk briefly about the treatment because I think you know many other people may have questions.
0: Okay, perfect. So here we are. These this is actually a lecture for. Uh, FLCCC that I did, and this would be available on Long Story Short with Dr. Bean as well. This is, I believe, on Rumble and on Odyssey. And there is a there is a page here. Let me just very quickly show this page as well. So on the FLCCC Substack, there is this page called "Building a Definitive Guide to Long COVID and Vaccine Injury," and you would have references to the videos and lectures that we have done about long COVID from the FLCCC platform. I believe, and it may sound like more uh, (laughs) self-serving or self-centered, but I believe for long COVID and vaccine injury, just like there is no place with the protocols as on FLCCC, I believe there is no educational resource better than what is available on FLCCC in these long story short videos. So, I did this video for FLCCC and in this video we discussed how long COVID and the intensity of long COVID was actually more with the ancestor variants compared to Omicron. So, let's look at them. So, Paul, this is one study in hematology patients. This study is astonishing for me. Check this out. So the very first diagram here is the hematology patients with ancestral variant, Wuhan variant. Then the center one is the Delta variant, similar patient group, but Delta variant. And the last one here is the Omicron variant. And you can actually see that Omicron variant looks a little derpy and the others have beards. (laughs) So that doesn't mean everybody with a beard is the ancestral side so these three variants and look at the difference between them mortality rate with the wuhan variant in hematology patients 42 percent delta nine percent mortality rate and look at omicron two percent so we are already talking about patients hematology patients Going down from 42% to 2% mortality rate and long COVID risk, 46% with the Wuhan, 35% with Delta, and 14% with Omicron. And and Paul, uh, as we look at the other studies as well, I have been observing that Omicron, when the Omicron started, the long COVID incidence at that time was presented as about 30, 34%. From the US Veterans Affairs Hospital, I think it was about 13 or 14%. So the range was 13, 14% to 30, 34%. And look at the Omicron's incidence now. And this is, we're talking patients. We're not talking healthy individuals, 14%. And it has gone down from 46%. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I think that it's very encouraging um, yeah. the, 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 these data, because it does suggest that both the acute mortality as well as the risk of long COVID has gone down substantially. So, although the outcome is a lot better, I, it, I, I think it doesn't mean that people can completely ignore uh, COVID or, or SARS-CoV two, um, because obviously it still is does have a uh, you know uh, significant implications. And so, we still do recommend early treatment. Absolutely.
0: Um, The outcome looks much better. I totally agree with you. So yes, if you see here, the there is still a risk of mortality, there is still a risk of long COVID lesser than previous ones. So early aggressive treatment would continue to be the, the way to go. So here is the next study. This is a study in cancer patients plus interestingly cancer plus vaccinated versus unvaccinated so in this study if you see they treated those patients who became infected within the february 2020 to november 2020 as pre vaccine time not really just the unvaccinated pre vaccine the vaccines were not there yet and they looked at the prevalence of long COVID in them. And then they had the ancestors, alpha and delta, and then Omicron. And check out the differences. Overall, in cancer patients, the incidence of long COVID was 16%. However, in the pre-vaccinated, I wrote unvaccinated here, but pre-vaccinated, 19.1%. In alpha-delta, 16.8% in vaccinated, 18.3% in unvaccinated. If you see, there is not a lot of difference between them. And then in Omicron time, 6.2% versus 9.4%. And if you compare that to 19.1%, we are talking cancer patients who may have actually been receiving immunomodulatory therapies. Even then, 6.2 to 9.4. This is their yeah. data. So, so I mean, I think the outlook is
3: generally favorable. So, you know, as as the, um, the virus has mutated, it seems to be a less virulent virus that's less likely to cause long COVID. So I think the, the, the news is good. And I think it would explain why the general prevalence of long COVID has gone down both yes. because it's a time-limited disease and because the risk is a lot lower with Omicron.
0: Absolutely, so new, new cases are reduced and the previous cases are becoming recovered. This is the same study. Then here is one more study. This is healthcare workers, Switzerland. This, I really love this study. The reason that I loved this study was that all of them were healthcare workers within this uh, age range that were on the younger side and without much comorbidities. So the, the matching of unvaccinated and vaccinated was very, very close. Look at the data here. So what they did was, sorry, go back. What they did was they took various cohorts. One they said uninfected. So these are those folks who never had the infection. And they looked at their symptom sets, meaning somebody who never had COVID and still has set of symptoms that may look like long COVID. So they wanted to compare them to general population to say, are these really long COVID symptoms or just generally happen? So here in uninfected patients or persons, there were 0.39 average symptoms that looked like long COVID. That may have been because of other reasons. Then in the ancestor pre-vaccine time, the so this is now we're talking Wuhan variant. Look at the average uh, symptom set, 1.12 average symptoms, meaning there are many people who are infected by a Wuhan variant. Some of them developed long COVID. Some did not. So if you average the symptom sets that would continue with them, it was 1.12 symptom sets. In alpha delta time, 0.67 symptom sets, long COVID. And in Omicron time, 0.52. Another interesting thing that they have here is that in unvaccinated healthcare workers, the symptom set is 0.36 average. So that means some got infected and they're not vaccinated and have long COVID. Some got infected, not vaccinated, and did not develop long COVID. And if you take their average, it was 0.36 symptom sets. Compare that to one to two vaccination, 0.71, and three or more vaccinations doses, 0.49. What is interesting so Paul I'm going to make a speculation this is not part of the study so I mean so I
3: think so. there's an important point here is that we know vaccination doesn't prevent spread of the of the virus and it seems from the data you're presenting that vaccination does not prevent or limit or reduce the risk of long
0: covid would that be good correct uh, uh, interpretation absolutely and if I could add one more point to that Paul that is, see, vaccination seems to have increased, right? How about this? May not be just the long COVID. This may actually be long COVID plus vaccine injured.
3: Yes, you're right.
0: The more, the more, more doses they get, the more chances for the vaccine injury. And actually, nobody is going to say this is vaccine injury, they're just going to say this is long COVID. So this increase in long COVID in vaccinated with doses seems to me as the vaccine injury being counted as long COVID. Do you think it it could be that way?
3: Yeah, I think it's really important that it becomes, this is what I said where the confusion is, is in people who, who vaccinated, are there symptoms due to long COVID or due to the vaccine or probably a combination of both? Because I think the larger your load of spike protein, the greater your risk of long COVID or vaccine injury in general.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So this was very interesting for me, this study from Switzerland. And when I read this study, they had a pretty good one-to-one match. So it was not that people who are getting vaccinated or have boosters they had more comorbidities compared to those who were not vaccinated. So they the match was pretty good for age and, and comorbidities and gender. So I have one more bonus slide here. This one. Shall we talk about this or should we go to the treatment? No, first? I think I think this is such an
3: important topic. Um, so yes, please. I think you know, both for COVID as well as for general um, neuropsychiatric disorders. I think this mutation is such an important topic to talk about.
0: Absolutely. So just to set the stage for this slide, I'm going to go and share, share this one. this one study here. This is 10 May 2023, factors associated with psychiatric outcomes and coping in long COVID. Generally, what this study is saying that in people with long COVID, there is a higher incidence of psychiatric outcomes. And we discussed that a little bit before as well. So keeping this in mind, Dr. Marek has been asking me for some time that we should talk about MTHFR, methionine, or sorry, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme. So just a very quick background to this one. In the US, amongst whites and Hispanics, 20 to 40% of the people have a mutation, at least one mutation, in their MTHFR gene. MTHFR gene gives is there to help produce an enzyme called methyl tetrahydrofolate or methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme. So let's very quickly see how this enzyme works and then we'll discuss why this is important for those who may have neurological symptoms or who may have clotting disorders after long COVID or vaccine injury to make sure that they are aware of their MTHFR gene mutation status. So let me explain very quickly. And uh, if you allow me, Paul, I'm gonna actually open up my actual diagram so I can zoom in. So here. So when we eat, green leafy things and actually bananas and legumes and nuts and avocados and eggs and and spleen, we, we have folate that is present in these products. Folate then gets absorbed and within our body it is converted to dihydrofolate. So imagine you, please imagine a leaf and that leaf has two waters with it. So dihydrofolate. Then that leaf gets another two waters attached, and that is tetrahydrofolate. This tetrahydrofolate is really important for us to keep in mind. What happens is, imagine that leaf having two earrings. <laughs> These two earrings are methyl groups here. So this is a funny, funny leaf. It has four waters attached with it, and it has two methyl earrings, diamond earrings given to it. It's very happy leaf, 510-tetrahydrofolate. That's what it is called. Now what happens is, this is the enzyme we are talking about. This enzyme is methylene or methylene-tetrahydrofolate reductase. What this enzyme does is it snatches one of the methyl group from this very rich leaf. And of course, if you see here, now this leaf is here and is crying because one of the methyl group is gone. We are going to snatch the second methyl group as well and use this methyl group in various processes in our body to make DNA and RNA and proteins and lipids. Methylation is a very important process while we are making these products in our body. So you can imagine DNA production, RNA production, protein production, lipid production needs methylation. And if we have a lack of methylation, the very early symptoms will be seen in neurological issues, in the form of neurological issues. So if we go back here, what we do, what our body does, is that once this enzyme takes away this methyl group, We are left with 5 tetrahydrofolate. Then we take this methyl group and we hand over that methyl group to homocysteine. This is homocysteine. Methyl group is given to homocysteine, which becomes methionine. So if you see here, this homocysteine and methionine, the only difference between them is this methyl group. When homocysteine gets the methyl group and becomes methionine then this little 5 tetrahydrofolate goes back to becoming tetrahydrofolate and this cycle continues and methyl groups continue to come in and they are given to homo uh, methionine then methionine picks up this methyl group and hands it over to other molecules that eventually bring those into the dna rna production protein production lipid production so you've already explained
3: that really well because it's quite confusing so the question then is if you are deficient in the enzyme mth or that enzyme what does that result in what are the what is the downstream effects if you deficient in the correct. mth or fg uh, enzyme
0: correct so now think about it if we do not have Actually, either this enzyme is deficient less or this enzyme is not working correctly. For example, as I said, whites and Hispanics in US have one mutation which causes the most common one mutation, which causes the enzyme to become less performant, 60% less performant or 60% of the normal. And then there is another mutation that causes the enzyme to go down to 30% of the performance. So that means imagine you have eaten the same amount of vegetables and greens as anyone else. And imagine if you have a performance issue of MTHFR. That means if you ate 100 folates, then a normal person would get 105 hydrofolates, but a person with the enzyme deficiency or mutation will end up only with 60 or 30. That means methyl group that is given to downstream functions is 40% to 70% lesser. So
3: Dr. Mabin, that's really important because what it suggests is that homocysteine levels will go up, but methyl donation will go down. So you'll have methylation, which is important for DNA, RNA, as well as many other enzymes. So homocysteine itself is harmful. So you have this double effect of increased homocysteine and at the same time, less methyl donation. Is that Would that be correct?
0: Absolutely. You are right on the money. So there will be less methyl available to all the other functions in the body. At the same time, there is accumulation of homocysteine. Why? Because homocysteine needs to become methionine with a methyl coming from 5-tetrahydrofolate. And because there is less tetrahydrofolate, 5 prime, there is less homocysteine conversion. Homocysteine would increase. That homocysteine is not only a biomarker. So if you are going to go and figure out if you have a problem with the MTHFR enzyme, homocysteine levels are the first one to figure out. And secondly, this homocysteine in literature, some studies say it causes harm and some studies say it does not, but there is a lot of association of homocysteine with blotting abnormalities and neurological abnormalities and cardiovascular issues. So, so to,
3: yeah, so just to interrupt, because there's some really important points on this diagram. The one thing, am I not correct that um, this? methyl donation This methylation is really important for neurotransmitter synthesis for norepinephrine serotonin dopamine so in addition to dna rna and lipids methylation is really important for neurotransmitter synthesis which is why you may have these cognitive dysfunction is that not correct absolutely correct and then so there's another implication. Can you go up in your little diagram, my friend? So because of where the enzyme defect is, giving more folate will not will not improve the problem because the folate is not being converted into the hetero, tetrahydrofolate. So it's really important that people who have raised homocysteine and decreased methylation by giving more folate doesn't fix the problem. You have to give the activated form of folate. Is that not correct?
0: Absolutely. So you could give more folate and that might create some improvement because if the enzyme is performing at a lower level, piling up folate would give it more substrate and there will be some more of this. But if you give activated folate, then you do not need this and you already have this substrate that can work with homocysteine and the, this whole machine would start working.
3: Yeah, so this becomes a really, really important um, consideration, Dr. Mo, because, yes. because we know that, you know, depression, fatigue, brain fog may be related to um, decrease methylation. Giving folate may not be the, the answer. What you really need is the active form of folate and so that's why in patients who have, you know, neurological psychiatric symptoms, one should really consider the mm-hmm. activated form of folate, which actually Absolutely. is quite readily available. It's it's an over-the-counter preparation that's not that more expensive than folate. Um, Absolutely. so I think that's this is a really important concept.
2: This Very is correct. Oh, so good, doctors. I have a lot of questions for you. And and uh, I have one more concept. Oh, where, if if let's see, just,
0: okay, just one hurry more. up. And,
2: We've got to get these okay. in. We've got good stuff here.
0: I want to show this one concept as well. That when there is a problem with methylation, it is observed that the endothelium of the blood vessels stop dysfunctioning. Not only that, because methylation processes are impacted, the coagulation factor, the clotting factor production becomes impacted. So the factors are not working correctly. And not only that, the body's capability of handling reactive oxygen species that get impacted, the result is microthrombi. So now think about it. If somebody has an MTHFR gene or or enzyme problem, top that off with vaccine injury, or long COVID, which also have the propensity to cause clotting, and all of a sudden, you have double pemi okay.
3: Yeah, it's really important. Thanks, uh, Dr. Mabin. You, you've taken this pretty complicated subject and made it quite simple. And so, where can, what is the active form of, of folate? What's it called? That is what you're gonna tell me. <laughs> no, you're gonna tell me methyl tetrahydrofolate. So you you can order the when you when you go online, instead of ordering folate, you order the methyl tetrahydrofolate, which is the activated form.
0: Correct. Right. So it is it is called fully activated folate, and you can find various brand brands that offer it.
3: Okay, Betsy, that was really important because I think, you know, this is this gene. Disorder may account for a substantial proportion of depression, fatigue, tiredness, particularly associated with COVID. And it's quite simple to correct. And um, you need the activated form of folate. So that's what you do, active folate.
2: We talked about this last week, by the way. We had two doctors on who were who were really getting into this. So it, it's a good review. Then of course, the, the way you explain it is so good and so clear. Uh, But, it yes, it's important. We have a lot of questions here, though, that really deal with the whole long COVID issue that you've brought up as well. So let's get into these. Um, Dan Arkan says there was a big article on NAC today. It was talking about taking it to remove damage from COVID. Can you comment on its efficacy?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, NAC is an is a precursor of glutathione it's pretty well absorbed as an antioxidant so um, um i you know it's on our acute COVID protocol it's on our um long covert protocol it's on our vaccine injury protocol so um it's a particularly safe compound it's pretty inexpensive So, you you know, as you can see, there's a a pretty long list of potential therapies, but clearly N-acetylcysteine
0: is on the list. Um, Would you agree with that, Mo? Absolutely. So N-acetylcysteine, just like a good cousin of glutathione, they have one of their function is to break the disulfide bonds, which start developing when the proteins are denatured or incorrectly formed, or when there is mucus that is building, or wherever there is this sticky thing building in our body. And NSC and glutathione both have the capability of coming and breaking them and also acting as you know scavengers for reactive oxygen species. So these this is an important molecule to have.
2: We have a question from Marjo who says, I would love to hear what the doctors think about nicotine patches to treat long COVID and whether nicotine is safe to take for those long COVID patients with heart symptoms like skipped beats, racing heart and heart inflammation. Anything on that?
0: No, please. Do you want to answer that? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So there was a study from France where what they did was there were patients who were becoming covid ill and they were ending up in the in the hospital and some of them were smokers and they found that those who had ceased smoking because they were in the hospital they were becoming more ill than those who uh, who were not smoking and so they found out that the cessation of nicotine and because smokers already had some nicotine receptors already down-regulated, secession of nicotine actually caused a more severe outcome. It turned out that nicotine actually can help block the spike protein's binding to ACE2 receptors. And so they started giving them nicotine patches that helped them actually f- perform better and recover better. So yes, nicotine does have a role. However, smoking does not. It is really okay. the nicotine itself.
3: so that's a really good question i think he answered it really well so i mean the the effect of nicotine is both binding the spike but also it's it acts on the autonomic nervous system it's a neurotransmitter so it affects autonomic tone so i think there is quite some good data on the use of nicotine and nicotine nicotine gum there are a lot of people that chew nicotine gum for for that benefit and apparently, it helps. And osmia, you know, loss of taste and loss of smell apparently is improved by nicotine gum.
2: Interesting. Correct. And now we have uh, Terry Peters wants to know what is the duration for taking ivermectin for long COVID, going into six months. This week, extreme bilateral leg pain is my primary symptom.
0: So. Uh... For me, that I've seen that sometimes when patients come off of ivermectin, the symptoms become worse. So at some point, what the patient should do is to figure out, can they reduce the frequency of ivermectin and still feel better or they start feeling bad? If they do, then they have to continue with the ivermectin and then start figuring out what other therapies are going to help with the pathophysiology. So just to
3: interrupt, you know, Part of the way ivermectin works is it's, an, it's a very potent anti-inflammatory. So there may be a role for other anti-inflammatories if you responded to ivermectin, you know, such as um, low-dose naltrexone or nigella sativa. So, you know, that, that would be something to consider. Uh, you know, obviously, low-dose naltrexone pretty high on the list. And also vitamin D. I think vitamin D is so important uh, because of its immune-modulating properties. So, you know, if the person is responding to ivermectin, it it indicates that there's ongoing inflammation and cutting it back means that there may be a rebound. So you want to make sure that you're on low-dose naltrexone, on melatonin, on magnesium, these other immunomodulators. So going back to the nicotine question, what do you think Jose wants to know about smoking cigars? Do you think smoking cigars (laughs) should be... On the list
0: for long COVID, Dr. Mo. <laughs> so I think that smoking cigars may be something to put on the list. I'm just kidding. So as long as we are talking about something that can cause epithelial damage to the bronchial tissue, that would not be a great thing to do. However, nicotine itself does have a role.
3: you muted yourself, Betsy. Betsy... Betsy,
2: you muted, my dear. Did it. The phone rang and I muted myself. Now I'm trying to get that's over. Thank heavens. All right. So <laughs> thank you. All right. Moving right along, as I said, um, Linda Larson says, I am looking for info on Molnupiravir. Do you know if it has been tested to be safe and effective for COVID?
0: So I am. Not a huge fan of molyopiravir. I remember that I did talk about some of the studies when the molyopiravir had come out. Uh, Haven't seen much benefit since then. So I have, I would, I would cite ignorance and (laughs) not respond. It's
3: It's a mutagenic drug that's quite toxic and lots of side effects. So, you know, unless it's your worst enemy, I would avoid the drug like the plague.
2: All right. Geo uh, Carr wants to know, in your experience, doctors, what is the best treatment, the best supplement for tinnitus?
0: This is so. A that one, is a it? very good question. Uh, tinnitus in some people, in some people, have become or improves. Early tinnitus improves with aspirin. In some people, it improves with magnesium. Low dose naltrexone definitely works. However, in some folks, it just does not respond. And in those cases, what I've seen is this non-invasive brain stimulation or extracranial stimulation may be helpful. Other than that, I have not seen. Tinnitus is the hardest one that lingers in long COVID and vaccine injury. Yeah, so many or-
3: patients many patients suffer terribly with tinnitus and it seems like such a trivial symptom Except these people have ringing in their ears nonstop. It's like they feel a trains in their head, and it can. These people can be so disabled that they can actually consider suicide. So I would refer the people to, to, or patients to our um, post-vaccine guide because we do have a whole list of therapies, and so um, which specifically look at tinnitus. So you know, as, as Doctor Mobin said, you know. Um, Low-dose naltrexone is good. Uh, Methylene blue should be considered. Photobiomodulation should be considered. Uh, And then obviously non-invasive brain stimulation. So there are a whole host of, um, you know, sequentially things that one can try to to get relief. But certainly there's been some good data with non-invasive brain stimulation. And the device is is reasonably inexpensive.
0: Correct. And there has been, uh, sorry, Betsy, for the interruption. The study that came out with the non-invasive brain stimulation, there were people in there with tinnitus who had reached out for a score of 0 to 100, 100 being the worst case that patient cannot even function. There were patients at 80 and above who, after the non-invasive brain stimulation, went down to 6 to 10 and they became functional. So that is something absolutely to be tried.
2: Well, I sit here uh, suffering from tinnitus, which I've had since I had Lyme disease in 2006. Uh, I've ignored it mostly, (laughs) except when I'm in a concert and it's not exactly the same pitch, but nevertheless, uh, I I can sympathize if it will work.
3: Have you heard of the FLCCC? Well, I think what you need to do, Betsy, is look at the guidance. The post-vaccine injury guidance has a long section on tinnitus.
2: Thank so, you, Paul. <laughs> yes.
3: So maybe the, the ringing in your ears will go away. Betsy. That would
2: be so lovely. Thank you. All right. I, I've been told now, but we, we, I can't, I can't let these other people get lost here. Come on, this is good. Uh, Donna Needham wants to know, says, I'm on the downside of shingles. The first two days I took ivermectin and it really helped, as it did my husband five months ago. Should I continue to take it? The healing has begun. Thank you.
3: Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's probably the anti-inflammatory properties that are accounting for it because, you um, Um, ivermectin doesn't work so well on dna viruses it mainly acts on rna viruses and shingles is due to a herpes virus so it's probably anti-inflammatory property so what i would do is titrate the dose down and see what happens um just you know titrate it and see see the clinical response what do you think dr mabeen i totally agree with that yes
2: all right Uh, Paul, Claire wants to know, are there any routine lab tests for spike protein load or vaccine injuries?
3: Yeah, that's such a good question. The answer is unfortunately no. You know, um, it would be nice if we would be able to detect the level of circulating spike in the blood so that, you know, people who are vaccine injured can get some biomarker that they can follow with time. And it would be good diagnostically. But for obvious reasons, nobody wants to commercialize that test. So I think, unfortunately, the answer is no. There are indirect biomarkers that one can use, you know, the CRP or the D-dimer, but it's very nonspecific.
0: You agree, there Doctor? Is, absolutely. And I would add, uh, for one more test that is slightly more close, and that is the anti-ACE2 antibodies. Anti-ACE2 antibodies is not necessarily the marker for everyone, but it will be for those where the spike protein production caused the anti-idiotypical antibodies to be produced, which are now attacking the ACE2 enzyme and kind of continuing the vaccine injury or the long COVID. Anti-ACE2 antibody, there is a company in uh, uh, in Germany, that does this test of NTAs2. They can actually collect blood from here, take it over there, and within a couple of weeks, they can measure the NTAs2 antibodies and get back to you.
2: It's eight o'clock, but I don't want to let you guys leave. Can you stay for a couple more minutes at least? Five, ten yeah. minutes maybe? Oh, sure. good, 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 good. Okay. Uh, so, John Buckingham wants to know, Dr. Bean, what is recommended for the dry cough you spoke about?
0: So, When you have it, what do you do? (laughs) So this is the funny thing. In the previous times, when I used to get this dry cough, I will take aspirin, anti-inflammatory. Aspirin for COVID dry cough is very, very effective. I used to take that and I used to become better. This time when I got COVID, I tried antihistamines. I tried uh, aspirin. I tried other anti-inflammatories. Nothing worked. Guess what worked? When I tried antihistamine or steroid nasal sprays, I became much better. So it seems like the cough after COVID could be for multiple reasons. If there is the pathology within the throat, that means there is inflammation of the throat. In that case, aspirins and uh, non-steroid and anti-inflammatory drugs would help. Even ivermectin would help. But if there is a post-nasal drip, that is there is an issue in the nose and then there is a drip that is occurring, then antihistamine nasal sprays, glutathione nasal spray or steroid nasal spray would really help.
2: Very interesting. Um, We have another question. Diana Carter wants to know, the symptoms of long COVID are almost a perfect match. For Lyme disease, since I mentioned Lyme earlier, could one of you comment on that?
0: So there is a lot of overlap with the Lyme disease as well. For example, Lyme Lyme disease have um, musculoskeletal issues, the muscles, the fatigue, the uh, post-exertional malaise, even overlap with the ME-CFS. So yes, there is a lot of overlap. And because of that, I have heard so much from the Lyme disease patients who are saying that we tried this protocol, let's say the FLCCC vaccine along COVID protocol, and they feel better. The only one request I'll make is sometimes Lyme disease patients can hush, and that is why you should not just start trying this protocol by yourself. You have to be under the supervision of a doctor so that the harsh reaction can be controlled. Yeah, well, Dr. Beans is absolutely correct. I mean, these are
3: chronic inflammatory immunological diseases. So there's a lot of overlap between Lyme disease, long COVID, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. um, And and often they respond to the same kind of therapy.
2: We have a question from Bob Stoll who wants to know... What about the after effects of long COVID and persistent inflammation and its contributory effects on cancer or turbo cancers?
3: Yeah. So it's it's a good question, and we don't know, but it seems that it's the spike, the load of spike protein, which determines the risk of cancer. And obviously the risk, the load of spike is much higher with vaccination. So it seems the risk of cancer and turbo cancers is much higher post-vaccination than it is associated with COVID itself. And there are multiple mechanisms by which um, the spike protein can actually increase the risk. So it probably happens with COVID and long COVID just because of the similar mechanisms, you know, interference with mitochondrial function interference with T cells and immune surveillance. And so it's likely with both, but it's not been well quantified. Would you agree with that, Sayed?
0: Absolutely. Yes. And and with your recent work on the cancer um, mechanisms and the supplemental therapies, yes, there, there is a... What is interesting for me is that how As the inflammatory system, the immune system is ramped up, amplified, the the cancer cell's behavior is actually amplified as well. Instead of immune system being able to attack them and kill them, it is that every cell that is dividing and functioning, including the cancer cells, they all become ramped up.
2: Diane Rowan wants to know, what can I do about the loss of taste and smell from Omicron? This has been going on since February.
0: Yeah, so here are a few things to note for anosmia. So first of all, the agusia the or the taste issue is really not the taste issue. It is really the anosmia that needs to be corrected. And that would correct the taste as well, because overall, the flavor sense is disturbed. Now, the things that can be tried, anosmia can be because of the epithelial inflammation in the roof of the nose. And for that, anti-inflammatories, ivermectin, ivermectin is such a magical thing for anosmia, especially in the early part of the anosmia when it occurs. If that does not help, then the nasal sprays, antihistamine spray or the steroid spray, these, these can help as well. If that does not help, then the low-dose naltrexone has been very helpful. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I
3: would agree with that. Yes, spot on.
0: Okay, I have
2: a, I have a final question here from Rebecca who prefaces it, says, I'm a woman of a certain age. Uh, says, I, I can relate to that. Says, I have been on berberine for three months because I stopped taking a statin. And I understood that berberine was good for managing cholesterol. One positive side effect I have noticed is that my skin is more smooth and has more elasticity. A number of people have commented on the change in my complexion. Could it be related to berberine? It's the only nutrient I have started in the last three months. Of
3: course, Betsy, everything is related to berberine. It reverses it makes dumb people quite smart. It makes your skin smoother, it makes you younger. Um, it's, it's a great ancient Chinese herb. What do you think, my friend?
0: So um, number one, I agree with you. And number two, the skin's elasticity is one of the factors, other than the moisture, one of the factors is the presence of the amount of cholesterol in it. And sometimes when the that amount becomes disrupted, let's say you're taking statins and the cholesterols are reduced, that causes the skin to become rough because this, this elasticity actually comes from the fluidity of the cell membranes, which is maintained by the amount of uh, cholesterols or uh, these lipids in it. So when we give berberine, berberine actually improves instead of reducing the cholesterols. And so, of course, just like the blood vessels will develop their flexibility back. Similarly, skin would become flexible as well.
3: Oh my well, goodness gracious. What a
0: good is, This
2: is a good way to end on a happy note. My wonderful, you guys are, are got berberine in there. I'm I'm starting to take it, but let's see what happens.
0: Woo. Everybody uh, who starts using berberine now send me a fee
2: i'll let you know thank you thank you thank you both of you we you know we've got to do this again um you're terrific and your talks dr bean i'm not a doctor i'm not a medical student but you know it's fascinating so, Betsy, i mean oh. if
3: you if you listen to all his podcasts and webinars I think we're going to award you an honorary medical degree. I
2: can put on a white coat maybe, or at least the short one, whatever.
3: Yeah, you can wear a short white coat. Yes. For All
2: sure. right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you That's so much. Awesome. I have a few announcements. I don't want people to go away because there's a lot of good stuff going on here and you want to know about it. And uh, you doctors, we want you back. All right, um, first of all, folks, uh, just mentioning what we talked about earlier for all of you who have access, uh, who want access to all the information that was in the Better Way Conference, it is available with a virtual pass. You can learn more or purchase a pass now by visiting genie.us and the forward slash is BWC 2023. Now then let's talk about Dr. Corey's book. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, You know, he wasn't with us tonight. We missed him, but he will be back here soon. In the meantime, you can get to know him even better in this book, The War on Ivermectin. I'm well into it. I'm enjoying it. And you can find it wherever books are sold, wherever you get your books. Now then, here's a thought. Speaking of The War on Ivermectin, Jenna McCarthy, who happens to be Dr. Corey's co-author, has a brand new Here's a Thought essay out called we can win this war. Yes, we can. And yes, we must. If you haven't read Jenna's article, you can find it on our FLCCC substack on our social media channels or at the link in the slide that you're looking at. And even more, we have something fun. Our store is full of lots of new summer swag, including this Dr. Joe Verone superhero collection. He is a hero. You know, he worked nonstop for months saving COVID patients, losing none for weeks when other hospitals were losing well over twenty percent, and some some higher than eighty percent of their patients. Joe certainly deserves his own superhero shirts and so much more. So. Head over to the supportflcccstore.store to see all these great new designs. Now, speaking of Dr. Verone, he is going to be a part of an FLCCC contingent at Pork Fest, a Freedom Lovers Festival coming up in New Hampshire in two weeks. No, it doesn't have anything to do with pork chops. But it will be quite an event, I am told. You can learn more at porkfest.com. That's pork spelled with a C. Now, our nurse, Christina Maros, is gonna be there too. And as always, she's been mighty busy as a clinical specialist here at the FLCCC, creating this all about elemental zinc infographic. It helps us make sense of a rather complicated mineral. You can find all about Elemental Zinc on our website, as well as on our FLCCC Odyssey and Rumble channels. And on that note, let's bring out Christina and the other nurses who have been answering your questions behind the scenes all evening. What a great group of volunteers. They do really good work. Good looking gals, smart as can be. How's it been tonight? What's happening? Busy. Been pretty busy <laughs> we answered one 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 111 questions tonight with only five open ones we rocked it out mm-hmm. wonderful well it sounds great um it sounds like you've got a lot of good information for a lot of good people and we are very very grateful that you keep coming on Pamela Burnham and oh my good Samantha Hanks and of course Christina moros who is our crna who kind of gets all the the nurses together and you run everything over there anyway thank you thank you thank you and have fun at pork fest uh you're (laughs) gonna have a blast at pork fest we can't wait all right all right now i want to thank everybody else you know all of you Who, you know, each and every one of you for being here with us, for joining us every week, for supporting us in all the ways that you do. It fills our hearts and we are forever grateful you help us, and more important, the people who depend on us. Like those who send us stories about their own experience with COVID, like the one we're about to play, it's followed by a music composition that a very talented donor gave us. So our talented graphics team added some visuals that seem to fit, and you know, we think you'll enjoy. Watch both, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.
5: Hi, I'm Jen. I want to thank you all so much for everything that you do. I'm so thankful that you formed the FLCCC immediately after the mess began and that I was able to find you so quickly in 2020. I know that the FLCCC has helped thousands, if not millions of people. Back in 2020, my husband and I followed and shared your information with our loved ones. We purchased a couple different COVID protocol medicine packs from two different FLCCC recommended online pharmacies containing both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We even gave a pack to my parents for Christmas in 2021 because they were so scared of the virus. But it was not until May of 2022 that we actually needed to use the medicine. I had attended a large conference in Sacramento, California, and came home with a very bad case of COVID. I had never been so sick in my 52 years of life. I began taking the recommended ivermectin dosage. I was already taking quercetin, zinc, vitamins D and C. Regardless, my cough had become very severe. I would throw up white foam every time I had a coughing fit. And my husband became very nervous and fearful. He was so desperate that he suggested taking me to the emergency room and there was no way I was ever going to go to any ER. My high school friend had just died after being given remdesivir, not long after being administered into the hospital with COVID after visiting the ER, so I wasn't going there. Instead, I phoned my wonderful nurse friend desperate for her advice. On the phone, she could hear how very sick I was and that I struggled to even speak. I had already told her about the FLCCC and that I was taking ivermectin and the vitamin protocol. I asked her if I could also begin taking hydroxychloroquine. She did a quick internet search and she said, yes, and that is where this gets amazing. Directly after I got off the phone with my nurse friend, I popped one of those hydroxychloroquine into my very sick body. I promise this is not an exaggeration. After only 10 minutes, my scary deep cough was totally gone and it never returned. Amazing, both my husband and I were rejoicing. I continued the round of hydroxychloroquine and recovered so quickly from being so incredibly ill. And now I keep that miracle drug on hand, not only for me, but anyone who needs it. And I cannot tell you how so very thankful I am for the FLCCC, so happy to finally share my story with you. And I praise the Lord for you and I pray that you are all blessed and rewarded. Every doctor, every nurse, everyone behind the scenes, you all do so much and you have saved so many lives through sharing this much needed information. Your work is never in vain. Please keep pressing on and persevering. Don't give up, keep going. And thank you so much for all that you do and I will continue to pray for you and lift you up in these hard, difficult times. Thank you so much.